Welcome to Element if you are new. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, we have sermon notes for this series, but they're different than we normally do them. We are handing out these binders, and you don't, again, I say this every week, you don't have to take a binder if you don't need one. This isn't a cult where you have to take your binder and read everything in it. If you'd like one, there are supplemental materials that we give you to go along with the series that go into this binder. Uh, the supplemental that we have today is two different articles. One is by Paul Tripp called If God Weren't Angry, goes into what we're talking about today. Then there's also an interview with N.T. Wright, and both of these can go in there, they're not on the communion tables in the room, but if you want to take one, you can grab one, put them in your binder. Uh, what we do have, I'm going to totally mess up Carrera by throwing that on her music stand. Um, what we do have on the communion tables are sermon notes that look like this. And on the front side of this, you're going to get ooh, the verses we're going through. You're going to get questions. The questions are vertical, like what is God doing internal? Then what is God doing in me? Horizontal, how does that now live out in my life? And then you have action steps. You've got a place to take some notes, a short little recap. On the back, you get a little prayer that's taken out of the Book of Common Prayer. And really, this kind of just goes with the message. It is three-hole punched on the side, so it can also go in a binder. If you have a binder, if you want a binder... Don't have to take a binder. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Invents in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device. And you will get the sermon notes, the verses, uh, links to all that stuff as well. Uh, really everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, and it says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for... Revealing yourself to us the way that you do so we would understand what love and justice and mercy and grace all look like as given by you. And I ask as we continue to walk through this series about forgiveness, we would understand how you have first forgiven us, what we have been forgiven from. And that in turn would change us so that we would be a people who live that out in our lives, representing who you are to your glory as we get to live in the joy that you provide. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing a series on what it means to forgive, but our forgiveness of others has to first start, as we keep saying, by understanding our forgiveness from God. And I keep wanting to be up front. This series comes about because I read a book by Tim Keller called Forgive. I thought it was so good. I would just plagiarize it and give it to you. People on the staff said, that's a good idea but it is so much harder than I thought that was going to be. So a lack of forgiveness and unwillingness to walk through difficulties with other people, it leads to avoidance where you don't want to talk to those other people. So you don't have to work through those things. It leads to weakened ministries. It leads to weakened relationships. And it's opposite of what the gospel calls us to. And so we are offering this series on forgiveness where we as a church family will hopefully learn how to forgive. 
how to repent with one another and become a deeper centered community that looks at what God has done for us and we then begin to live that out in response. And we keep saying, I know this is the summer. People are in and out all kinds during the summer. So if you miss a week, please get the podcast and listen to it. Uh, watch the YouTube of the Sunday morning. If, if you miss it, just stay up to date. Each message will stand on its own, but they really do go back to back, together, together, together. So we want you to stay up to date on all of them. Now, today, if you have been here for the last four weeks and you are thinking, my goodness, this is a lot. I'm feeling overwhelmed by how I'm supposed to go and forgive and how what looking at my heart. Today is a good day for you because we're going to take a little side excursion today and we're going to look at God. We're going to look at what God has forgiven us from why God has to forgive us. The verse I had you stand for at the very beginning, Romans 5, 9 through 11, reminds us. Salvation, when you ask people, what do you save from? People have all kinds of answers. The devil, sin, all these. Well, the Bible defines salvation technically as being saved by God from God and his wrath against sin. That's how the Bible defines it. Our sin separates us from God and everyone else. It destroys everything it touches. And so I called this message Love and Fury because it is God's love that leads to his wrath against sin. And this is why forgiveness is needed. Now, some people today will say, well, God's just love. And in their mind, they define love as God saying, whatever you want to do, I'm okay with that. You run till the wheels come off. Oh, your wheels came off. Ah, uh, okay, blame me. You know, it's, it's, it's this weird thing where you think God just says, do whatever you want to do. And that's not love. C.S. Lewis made this amazing appeal to British readers to get a better understanding of who God is by helping them see that love does not mean affirming every bizarre thing that we want to do. We must see the truth and accept the idea that God is a holy God. So this is what he writes. It's kind of long, but this is what he says. If God is love, he is by definition something more than mere kindness. He has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable sense. When we fall in love with a woman, do we cease to care whether she is clean or dirty, fair or foul? Do we not rather than first begin to care? Like when you love somebody, do you not care about what is happening in their life? Of course you do. He says, in awful and inspiring ways, we are the objects of his love. You have asked for a loving God. Will you have one? Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, but the consuming fire himself. The love that made the worlds, persistent as the artist's love for his work, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. It is certainly a burden of glory, not only beyond our deserts, but also, except in rare moments of grace, beyond our desiring. And it's so interesting because he says God loves us more than we desire to God, that God would love us. Because God loves us in such deep ways that when he sees sin destroying our lives, he has wrath against that. He gets angry at that. God has anger at what destroys the object of his love. And therefore, God must oppose sin and anything that hurts his loved people. Lewis reasons that if we truly have a loving God, we will have to believe in a God who has wrath against sin. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. We're going to look at the Psalms. We're going to look at the prophets. And we're going to look at the Gospels. You're like, that's a lot. I'm a professional. Trust me. We will make it through this. We're going to be okay. (laughs) 
that we have to understand what this looks like, like why the Bible speaks about forgiveness the way that it does. The key to Christian forgiveness is the cross. That's the foundation of forgiveness. It makes God impossible for God to forgive us, which leads us to the place where we can forgive one another. It shows that there is justice and righteousness and grace. And there's a model for forgiveness that we see that God does for us that we can then begin to live out. And if we want to understand how we as hurt or angry or wrong persons can forgive, we must see how God, who is the ultimate wronged person, also forgives. And he does it by the cross. So the first thing we're going to talk about is the Torah, also called the Pentateuch. That is the first five books of the Bible. Torah means simply the teachings or the way. So Genesis 1 through 3. You might be heard the story at some point, but God makes everything. There you go, everything. And he makes humankind, and he makes them in his image, and he places them in this garden, and he gives them the freedom to do anything except disobey him, except run from him. Now, why would God be so mean as to say that? Well, because in God is life, and apart from him is death, and God knows that. And so he says, don't run from me. Don't rebel against me. He places a, gar- a tree in the middle of this garden. And in Genesis 2, 17, says, don't eat from that tree. And the day that you eat it, you're going to surely die. Now, obviously, we know what happened, right? Because it's the same thing we, we would have all done. It's why you can walk down a street. And if there's a fence on the side of the street with like a bunch of boards and a hole in one of the boards, you never notice that hole until someone puts a sign up that says, don't look through this hole. And you're like, no. I'm going to look through that hole. Who tells me not to look through the hole? Well, that's what God, don't eat from this tree. I'm going to eat from that tree. And they eat from the tree. And then obviously, they died. Now, they didn't die physically. Well, why not? The church father Augustine says it like this. If it be asked what death God threatened man with in Genesis 2.17, whether bodily or spiritual or the second death, we answer, it was all. He comprehends therein not only the first death, whosoever the soul loses God, nor the second death, eternal, and following after all, but all. You're like, I just got lost. Okay. Basically, Adam and Eve, they sin. They rebuild. They lose their relationship with God. That is spiritual death. They also lost that deep relationship with one another. There is this thing where they are naked and they feel no shame. And now they feel shame. Now they cover themselves. They lost the relationship with one another. They had a relational death. But God did not strike Adam and Eve with physical, eternal death, which according to his own decree, they actually deserved. And the question is, why not? It is grace. It is mercy. That is the divine attribute that grounds all of forgiveness. God will even come into the garden in Genesis 3. After they run away from him, he will say, where are you now? What are you doing? And he will promise himself to come and to rescue his people who have run from him. It's beautiful. He says, I will have a Messiah. Well, you fast forward a little bit. Adam and Eve, they have a son named Cain. They're like, this must be the Messiah. And then Cain kills his brother Abel. This must not be the Messiah. You know what's happening here? Cain does not repent for his crime of killing his brother. Instead, he complains. Other people are going to find me and they're going to kill me for what I've done. But God in mercy puts a mark on Cain that in some undisclosed way protects him so he can live out a normal lifespan. Derek Kidner says this, it is the utmost that mercy can do for the unrepentant. And that's beautiful because this is what God does. We, we sometimes call this common grace, that God sends sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You fast forward a little bit past this, you get to Noah's flood narrative. Everything gets taken out. But this is more than divine judgment on sin. Because before the flood, you see, Genesis 6, 5, that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, Genesis 6, 6, and it grieved him to his heart. 
This Hebrew word combination is both anger and sorrow. In the earliest pages of the Bible, you get insight into God's stance towards sin because God is not merely sad or angry. It is not love or fury. It is both. He is angry over the offense and the violation of sin, but he mourns over its effects. He mourns over what it's doing to the people that he loves and the creation that he made, just like C.S. Lewis said. If you jump a few chapters later, you run into a guy named Abraham. And Abraham, when you first meet him, he is a pagan demon worshiper. And by the time you get to Genesis 15, he has made a mess of his life. But he trusts God and tells you that he trusted God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In the New Testament, you have a guy named the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 4 that that means that Abraham had been forgiven fully for his sins. Though the word forgiveness does not appear explicitly in that Genesis text. And the Bible continually shows what grievousness that sin is to God. Uh, Derek Kidner actually says of Genesis 6-6 when you know, God's heart is broken because of the sin. He says, already God suffers on man's account. A foreshadowing of God's voluntary suffering for sin at the cross. Again, God finds sin not merely infuriating but grievous. And it is that tension between God's holiness and his love. The necessity that sin requires a punishment and the desire for sinners to be delivered. And that becomes the basis for the necessity of forgiveness. And God achieves this eventually on the cross as Christ dies for us. Because the cross will equally honor both God's justice and His mercy. The first time that you see the word forgiveness in the book of Genesis, it is in the story of a guy named Joseph. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. They think he's dead. And lo and behold, years later, he's not dead. And the brothers ask Joseph to forgive them in Genesis 50, verse 17. Now, the Hebrew word they use there is what's called nasah. And Nassau relates to this word for forgiveness we talked about last week, aphiomi in Greek. And it means to send away, where the forgiver no longer accounts this sin on top of the perpetrator. Joseph in the text will not literally say, I forgive you. What he does is he responds by rejecting vengeance and he will pledge love to them, which is the critical element of forgiveness. Now, obviously, if you've ever looked at the Bible before, when you get out of the book of Genesis, you get to the rest of that Torah with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you start to see much more references to forgiveness. In Exodus 32, 34, Numbers 14, Moses prays for and receives forgiveness for God's people. The entire worship system, while they wandered around in the desert for those first five books of the Bible, you had this thing called the tabernacle. Animals were sacrificed in a way to provide forgiveness. Later, a guy named Solomon will come. He will build a permanent temple to replace that tabernacle and he prays that through the temple God will hear his people that he will forgive them and if you look at Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8 or 2 Chronicles 6 forgiveness dominates those prayers and at the heart of the Old Testament worship is this idea of forgiveness because without it there can be no relationship with God and we were made to be in relationship with God all right take a deep breath There you go. Part one. Here we go. Part two. All right. Uh, The Psalms. If you have a Bible, open to Psalm 130. If you're going to use one of the Bibles at Element, that is on page 333. Now, what the Psalms will do is they will teach you about God's character and God's forgiveness and how the biblical writers saw it. Uh, I can't go through all the Psalms that talk about this because we'd be here all week and then you would kill me or I'd have to ask for your forgiveness. Yeah. (laughs) Gosh. Okay. Uh, Super awkward. All right. Uh. But I'll give you one example. Psalm 130, I'm going to read the whole thing. This is what is said. 
Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Now we actually went through this a couple of years ago. We did this series called The Songs of Ascent, and people would sing a certain 15 psalms on the way up to Jerusalem to worship for the feast. This was one of them that they would recite. So you have this guy. And he's crying out from the depths. Well, the depths is a picture of drowning. What is he drowning in? He says in verse 3, his iniquities. Those are his sins. He is willing enough to look at and recognize them for what they are. So the psalmist cries out for mercy. So the prayer teaches you about the Old Testament view of forgiveness by these people who wrote these poems and these songs. And there's five things in this psalm. Number one is this, the universal need for forgiveness. Number one, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, that means keep a record of, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one, exactly. No one could stand. Uh, Psalm 1, Psalm chapter 5, a bunch of other psalms. To be standing before God means to be acceptable to God, that we can stand in His place. Every, everybody sins. That's not news. The teaching is that we are all spiritually alienated from God. It goes back to what God says in Genesis. No one's good enough to stand in God's presence on our own. That's what it's saying. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. This refers back to Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, where David David says, the Lord looks down on mankind to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. But all have turned away. There is no one who does good, not even one. Meaning, no one passes that test of basic goodness or decency on judgment day. Because of our sin, no one can stand. And that is the universal need for forgiveness. Now, secondly, you see in this is the problem of forgiveness. What makes forgiveness difficult is that it creates a record, a residue, a liability, an obligation. If you have, if you get in a car that's five, ten years old, people have eaten in that, they breathed in it, they picked their nose in that, and there's this residue. People clean it, but there's always a residue somewhere. It's like, you like it. Ooh, yeah, yuck. There's a residue in there. That's like sin. Uh, when you cook scrambled eggs, and they get left in the bottom of that pan. There's a residue. If someone steals something from you or wrongs you and they get caught, can they say to you the next day, hey, that was yesterday. Just, just let it go. Forget about it. No, you still feel very strongly that there is a sin against you and it creates a debt. The obligation does not just pass away. And so sin creates this record, especially with a eternal, holy, good God. And without forgiveness, we would all perish in the payments due column. There's a reckoning that must come. And so there's a universal need for forgiveness. There's a problem of forgiveness. And yet, third, there is the fact of forgiveness. Because the psalm writer does not say there might be forgiveness with you. What he says is there is forgiveness with you. He's saying, even though there is a record of sins that condemns everyone, you find a way to forgive. And he is astonished by that fact. Because in his mind, it's like, how will you ever accomplish this? What, what brings this about? This is a mystery to him, where it's not a mystery to us. Because we know that Christ came and died for us on the cross. This psalm writer has a faith of what God will one day accomplish. And it is something that we all get to know as the surety of historical fact. 
that Jesus came. This is why Christianity is an historical faith. So you have the universal need for it, the problem of it, the fact of it, and the fourth thing you see is when you understand it, the inward result of what forgiveness brings. Forgiveness, pardon, grace leads to an increased fear of the Lord. Now, you hear that we're like, a fear of the Lord? What, what does that mean? The fear of the Lord is one of the most basic concepts in the Old Testament scriptures used to describe godly character. Today, when we hear the word fear, we think, I'm trembling, I'm freaking out, I'm afraid. Oh, that kid's Halloween costume scared me, or I saw the scary movie and I just think about it. I won't walk down the hallway with the lights off anymore. What if something's going to jump out of that mirror and grab me? Just me? Okay. I have stories, but I don't have time. Anyway. <laughs> can tell you about all, all these things. So when you look in the Bible and you see this psalm, what you start to see is it sheds new light on what this actually means. Because the term fear, yeah, has the idea of being humbled and overwhelmed, but it has the idea of relationship. Relationship. The Forgive Book says this, this term would be best defined as joyful awe and wonder before the transcendent greatness of who God is. See, this understanding of the real fear of God means to be so deeply affected by who God is and what He has done, our awe and humbleness before Him, that it changes us. We begin to live differently when we really understand that we are forgiven. It does not lead to doing whatever we want, but a respectful surrender to His sovereignty. Okay? So you have the universal need for it, the problem of it, the fact of it, the inward result of it. And then fifth, you have the ultimate goal of divine forgiveness, which is God himself. The writer says, my soul waits or watches for the Lord. He longs for fellowship, for connection. Forgiveness in the fullest sense with God is not simply asking for a pardon. It's always about restored relationship. Now, have you ever thought about that in your life? That when you say, God, forgive me, I've done these things. Is it about just getting forgiven so you can go on and do your thing? Or is it really about that restored relationship? God, I need these things taken away so you and I can have a relationship that is restored again. Because that's the point of that forgiveness. With that restored relationship, we can then have restored relationships with one another. All right, deep breath. It's the Psalms. You're like, too much, too much. I've told I need to pause more for you. I'm pausing. Okay, here we go. Uh, <laughs> next thing we're going to jump to is the prophets. Okay, the prophets. Uh, the main role of the prophets in the Old Testament was essentially to bring co God's covenant lawsuit to the people. They broke God's covenant, the relationship that God made with them, and so they rebel against him. And what essentially happens, the prophets are the lawyers show up. And don't we always enjoy it when the lawyers show up? Yes, okay. So the prophet's main burden was to tell the people that because they had rebelled against God, because they broke this covenant, because they were faithless, the consequences are going to be severe. There is social decline, there is decay, there is colonization by foreign powers and exiles. And yet, these prophets would still tell them that God is still a forgiving God. And though all these judgments would come, they would actually pave a way for a greater redemption because God would not and will not forget his love for his people. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 33 says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor... And each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
the lawyers show up. This is what you've done. This is how you've broken it. This is what is going to happen. How is this going to be accomplished? And how is God going to bring about that redemption? And no prophet tells you more about this than a guy named Isaiah. Isaiah says it is going to be through this coming Messiah that God promised all the way back in the book of Genesis. The Messiah is going to be a king, Isaiah 11, a suffering servant, Isaiah 52 and 53. That servant will not only give salvation to Israel, but to the Gentiles. Yay, that's most of us. That's a good thing, Isaiah 42. He will establish a new heavens and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and all the peoples will be forgiven, Isaiah 33. The prophets were called by God to tell Israel about their sin, how you have run from God, how you have broken relationship and covenant with God. But also, they could not help but start speaking in the most moving way about God's grace and mercy. Because the message of the prophets became no amount of human evil can ultimately stop God's forgiveness from finding its way to you. God has a love for his people and a fury against the sin. And yet he will bring this together so that we can come back in relationship with him. That's an easy one, right? Deep breath. Okay, that was a shorter one. Now let's talk about the gospel accounts. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because each week we are talking about the gospel accounts. But as we walk through this, there is a whole lot that takes place in here. Now, the gospel accounts show a greater and clearer idea of what forgiveness looks like. Because in the gospel account, you see it's not just a divine forgiveness, God to us. But as we receive this, we get to go out and then have a horizontal, us and one another forgiveness. And it brings reconciliation and healing to communities. You have all these sacrifices from that tabernacle and from that temple. And they all come together in understanding what God does and how he forgives. Now, in the New Testament Greek, there are two words that are used to convey the idea of forgiveness. One is grace and one is called remission. Uh, grace means to deal with someone in a gifting, gracious manner, not a calculating way. So forgiveness is not something that's earned like any other gift. It is just given. It is given. And that's understanding. It is grace and love at the expense of the giver. Uh, the Apostle Paul loves to use this word. Now, the other word is a word called remission. Uh, we talked about this a few weeks now, but it's this word called a thesis or a theme, depending on the context that it's used in, but it is to let it go to release from obligation or debt. That is the word most often used in the New Testament. 47 times that word will be used. That most common word for forgiveness, it's in the gospel accounts and the book of James. Remission reminds us that forgiveness always brings a cost when the debt is canceled. And who pays the debt for our sins? Jesus on the cross. So the New Testament will then start with this focus on the reminder of forgiveness and the promise of this coming Messiah from Isaiah and Genesis and a ton of other places. So there's a promise where G uh, Joseph, Jesus' adopted dad, Matthew 121, this angel comes and says the Messiah would save his people from their sins. That's what he's going to come and do. You have a guy named Zechariah who was a prophet in the temple after Jesus is born and he sees Jesus. He has been waiting for the consolation of Israel his entire life. And then he sees Jesus, Luke 1, 76 to 78. And he says, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Did you catch that? Because the tender, not, here's all the saying, we know about the anger against sin, but also there's salvation because of the tender mercy of our God. When Jesus grows up and starts his ministry, he declares that we can know God's forgiveness and then in turn forgive those who wrong us. The motivation, the power behind our forgiveness comes from his forgiveness of us. All right, last time, deep breath. Let's go back. 
Okay, <laughs> let's go back to where we started. We call, I call this message love and fury because the anger of God is ultimately about the love of God. So lo the love of God many times then is shown in his anger towards our sin. And that seems so foreign to us, but it isn't. It's like C.S. Lewis said, how do you feel if something or someone hurts something or someone that you love? Maybe you have a child and someone hurts your child. How do you feel about that? Maybe you have a loved one or a friend or a parent and someone takes advantage of them. How do you feel about that? You get angry. Becky Pippard once wrote this, Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. Anger and love are inseparably bound in human experience. And if we as flawed people can understand that and know that, how much more in a morally perfect God, how much more righteous is His anger at sin? See, the Bible speaks of the strongest terms of God's opposition to sin and evil, and yet He weeps over it. He weeps over it. Jesus weeps over it, and that is not harshness towards it, and it's not a compromise with sin. The Bible does not reveal simply of God of fury or a God of love, but a God of love and fury because He is a holy God. It is holy love, holy wrath. Uh, Keller writes this, God's subtle opposition to evil is working itself out in your life. He has set up the universe so that if you move against God's law, you move against yourself. You can get away with your sins, but you can never get away from your sins. And he did this out of love. Now, our hearts, we always see anger at odds with love. And this is why we need the Spirit's help to help us to understand God. Broad generalities, okay? Typically, conservative people tend to have a harsh view of God that's rooted in God's anger at sin. Oh, yeah, God has wrath against that. You're going to burn, repent. The end of the world is nigh, right? But if you go to the other side, again, broad generalities, typically liberals have an view of God that God is loving and God just accepts whatever we want to do because, hey, that's rooted in God's love. How do you escape both of those distortions? There's only one way. You look at the cross. That's where you got to go to understand and heal from all of our misunderstandings so we don't have a divided heart. 150 years ago, Horatius Bonner, he said this, God is a father, but he is no less a judge. Shall the judge give way to the father or the father give way to the judge? Well, that's a good question. He says, shall he sink his love to the sinner and his hatred of the sin or his hatred of the sin and his love to the sinner? That's a good question. God has sworn that he has no pleasure in the death of the sinner, yet he has also sworn that the soul that sinneth it shall die. Which of the two O's shall be kept? Shall one give way to the other? Good question. Law and love, one cannot give way to the other. Both must stand, else the pillars of the universe be shaken. And that is the tension that goes throughout the entire scriptures. The entire Old Testament is asking that question, and it keeps going, what is the answer to this? The answer to this is not merely the death of Christ. It is the voluntary death as the second person of the triune God that substitutes himself in our place. John Stott once said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. He goes on, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where God, only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Beautiful. It's beautiful. The book of Hebrews tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Paul tells us in Romans 3 that it is Jesus who shed that blood for us. Romans 3.26 says God did this to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There has never been a love like the love of God. 
and we take it like it doesn't really mean a thing. And it is so deep and amazing. We are undeserving recipients of God's love. There has been no compromise. Law and love have both been fulfilled in Christ. Only a grasp of what Jesus did on the cross, the doctrine of this substitutionary atonement, can prevent the distortions that we have. Only seeing the reality of the cross keeps us from thinking God is mainly holy with a little bit of love mixed in, or mainly loving with a little bit of holiness mixed in. But instead, God is holy and loving equally at the same time. And what that means is this view of God on the cross enables us to be able to be those who practice and live in human forgiveness as we also can be those who give equal weight to justice and mercy. Without the cross, there, there's no vertical dimension of understanding forgiveness. And if we don't have an understanding of our own forgiveness, human forgiveness will atrophy. Forgiveness will be a hunt for emotional freedom or just a kind of revenge. The doctrine of the cross is wonderful. It is life-changing. It is liberating. The writer to the Hebrews, chapter Hebrews 2, verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And that's where we understand that we have been given a salvation by God Himself. We must come to understand our own forgiveness. And this is why before next week you get into love and justice and what that begins to look like, we have to start here. Now, each week I've been showing you a video of someone talking about their forgiveness story. And I waited till the end of the message to show you this one. Uh, this is Mike Harmon. Uh, he wants you to understand that there's a writer's strike. So, you know, it may not be the best writing in, in that. So I want you to know that up front. <laughs> But uh, I think this is really kind of powerful for what we talked about and where this goes. So here's my Carmen. Like me, uh, my ex-wife uh, was a very broken person. The marriage did endure uh, an affair that brought great havoc and brokenness. Um, our marriage ended in a divorce that was mutually caused by our sins and failures against one another. Trying to resolve or reconcile the um, destructiveness, the chaos and the, of, of how an affair breaks a marriage, um, the only obvious option was to forgive. Um, though I didn't have any idea what forgiveness really meant, didn't really understand what forgiveness would look like or require, so much of my uh, forgiveness uh, was that of it was transactional in that it was constantly being earned by present behavior to make up for what I, the debt that I felt I was owed. I was very um, now suspicious and, and insecure in the marriage and living through those things was painful. So there was this sense of I'm owed for this, though it wasn't verbalized or I don't think it was very cognitive, it was just there. My sin heart was exposed and so my reactions of uh, my sinfulness of trying to protect myself and to control another person and to be harsh with them and to belittle them uh, contributed to the continual demise of the marriage. I realized probably within a year or two after, after the divorce, that I didn't understand forgiveness. My, my sinful coping mechanisms, my defense mechanisms, my um, using anger and harshness to control my environment uh, continued to play out in life, in particular to my uh, marriage to Deb. And as I began to see the effects of those things in her, the Spirit of God made me aware of, 
of those mechanisms I really wasn't aware of. I just thought this was just me. And so as I began to see the effect of them on somebody that I loved and who uh, was completely faithful and loyal and um, expressed the, the kindness of God to me, um, it began to unravel my self-protection. I began to see how my sin was um, tearing down another, and I couldn't fix it. The damage that I had done had been done, much like an affair does in a, in a marriage. And so I was stuck with a debt that I couldn't pay. My only hope was to understand that Jesus forgave me, paid for my sin, and then also um, paid for the debt. And I could only hope that and pray that that would have an effect in our marriage where it would begin to bring healing to Deb. So the process of my own personal healing was slow and for many years unperceptible to Deb. She knew that something had transpired because of the conversations we had, because of how I felt like God met me and encountered me and my understanding of, of grace became a, a real and vital um, piece of my spiritual life. And so it was over many years, the love of His grace began to secure me to the place where I began to see that that wasn't who I was. And I began to see more and more how those hurt and harmed Deb and others. And so it just began to unravel, but it only unraveled under the security of God's love and grace to me. He was just kind, He was generous to me. Uh, and lots of that came through Deb's kindness and graciousness towards me. For all the, the, the ways that I was hurting her, she uh, somehow, by God's mercy to her, continued to stay uh, available and risking and believing that God was doing something. We have, I think, an understanding of our own anger. And sometimes I think we place that onto God. And what we have to understand is that God's anger towards sin, it leads directly to the cross. This is why we do communion every week at Element, because it's a reminder that God, in His anger toward the sin that destroyed us, actually comes and says in mercy and grace, I'm going to save you, because you cannot save yourself. And I think when we have a better picture of God's anger, His wrath against sin, it reminds us of also His mercy and His grace, and it will in turn begin to make us a more merciful people. Just like, as Mike says, the more he understands God's grace, the more merciful he becomes. But God's grace comes because He has taken care and dealt with our sin. This is why every wicked element, we invite you guys to a place of communion where you break a cracker that reminds us of Jesus' body which was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice as a reminder of His blood that was shed for us because God is a God of wrath and love, and He hates our sin, what we continue to do, how it destroys relationship, and yet He has, yet He loves us enough to bring Him to Himself by a work that He Himself does that we cannot do on our own. And so this morning, when you take communion, remember that. Remember that. Lay down your wrath at everything that does not need wrath, and understand the mercy and grace that you have been forgiven, that He has brought you to Himself. If you need prayer, 
Maybe you are in a place, you know, like, like Mike has been. Maybe you're in a place where you haven't really understood the, the goodness of God in the midst of his wrath and his love. And you want someone to pray with you about that, to get a proper view of who God is. Right across the way in the lounge, we have people over there who will answer any questions. They would love to pray with you, walk. You can go during the music after the, after the message, I mean, after the, the uh, service is over, and just talk with them and pray with them. They'd love to talk to you about it. Uh, we are a people who are trying to constantly respond to what God is doing in our lives. Our forgiveness is a response. Our love for one another is a response. Our generosity is a response. This is why at Element we don't pass a plate. Uh, any type of offering that takes place is you being generous and actually giving in response. This way of offering boxes on the side wall, you can give online. But I encourage you to grab the sermon notes and the questions that are there today and begin to walk through the understanding of holy love, holy wrath, and just the great grace and mercy with which God loves us as a people, that he would take care and save us from himself and his wrath against sin so we can, again, be restored into relationship. Let's pray. Thought of this morning, we ask that as we hit this place in the Forgive series and we talk about the understanding of wrath and love, that not just our hearts, but our minds would be moved to a deeper understanding of what it means that you have wrath against sin, that you do not just wink and act like it's not a big deal, but you brought about ultimate justice, that you come. And Christ gives himself for us, the undeserving, the unworthy. And yet because of what you've done, you make us worthy. And that means we have a worth and a value, as C.S. Lewis says, so prodigious in your eyes that it should help us to see what real love responds like to those who are loved. And so teach us to understand that great love. I mean, a love, and in, in metaphorically, that, that shakes the foundations of the world, of creation. And in so understanding that, that we respond like the psalm writer says, in this humbleness, this fear, this awe, this wonder of who you are, and it would change us so that you would be the one who is glorified, the one who is the center of our worship, that our eyes would get off of ourselves and all the things that seem so important to us that simply many times pull us away from you and that instead we'd be reset to the place where we would see your grace and mercy extended to us so that we would live in ways that extend that same grace and mercy to others. And we ask that in your son's name. Amen. We're going to drop these curtains. And as we do, we're going to do a couple songs. And I just invite you during these couple songs to ask God to show you how much... He loves you, 
not because you are so lovely, but because he is so good. And maybe in those moments to understand where you are irrationally angry at other people, how your anger can stand at odds with the holy, righteous anger of God. And that God would then enable you to see that he has paid your debt, your price, to bring you to himself. And then in turn, your heart can start to be melted in ways that reflect more fully upon who he is. So ask him, God, show me now your great love for me. Have that melt in my anger and all these things that keep me thinking everybody owes me when I ultimately owed you and you paid that debt for me. And then in humbleness, come and take communion. Sing some songs. We'll start to move out into the world. Another week in this Forgive series. Again, hopefully understanding who God is better, His grace towards us as we walk forward honoring and glorifying Him and how we are changed because of what He has done.